Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel, the pastor of St. Monica on um, Mercer Island, as well as Sacred Heart in Bellevue. Father Nagel is going to lead us in a scripture reading and a prayer. This is from uh, Luke chapter 2, at the end of the incident of um, Mary and Joseph finding Jesus in the temple. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. He went on with them and said, he, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and favor before God and man. Gracious God, we ask your blessings upon us today as we discuss the, the wonderful life and uh, reality and just the grace of your son's mother, Mary. So bless us in this discussion with her intercession and presence and bless those who will receive these words with an openness to the Spirit's promptings and movements in their lives. We ask through Christ our Lord. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Nagel, very much. So this is sort of like a time-traveling radio program because we're recording this on Thursday the 9th. The Feast of Our Lady of Lords is Saturday the 11th, but this program is airing on Monday the 13th. So kind of time-traveling going on here. <laughs> we can do it all. We can do it. <laughs> There's a bilocation. Is this, or is this a form of bilocation? Is that does not really count? I like to say we're joining into a divine status where we're outside of time. We can see all of time at once. Yeah, yeah I wish. That, yeah. <laughs> well, isn't that part of what happens when um, you're at Mass? Aren't you like simultaneously yes, touching yes, both? That's true. Backwards to the Paschal mystery of Christ's death, death on the cross, and also a foretaste of the heavenly Banquet. Uh, wedding feast of the Lamb? We are. That is very true. Once again, you, once again, you have enlightened me, educated me, and made me feel better. <laughs> I got to tell you, so uh, there are things that I didn't appreciate that I've come to appreciate. Things that I thought were passe or just old-fashioned and out of touch that I've come to appreciate in a new way. Uh -huh. And one of them is altar rails. Because uh -huh. I've always thought of an altar rail as just connected to what? Receiving communion, receiving right? Communion, yeah. You go and you kneel down and you receive Holy Communion. And and that's true, right? That's that's true if you go to a traditional Latin Mass to do that. And actually at Our Lady of Lords, to speak of that, at Our Lady of Lords uh, in Spokane, the, the cathedral, when people come forward to receive Holy Communion, you know what they, they've done now? They, they actually have a kneeler, like a, an individual kneeler. Hmm. So when someone comes forward to receive Communion, they have a choice. They can receive communion on the tongue. They can receive communion in the hand. Or they can kneel down at the kneeler and receive communion kneeling. Is it, I mean, I, I haven't seen this. Is it, I, I would think, is a kneeler between the person or is off to the side? So if you didn't want to use a kneeler, I mean, is it a bit of a stretch? I, I, I guess I'm just trying to picture, how do they put the kneeler there? Yeah, the logistics is that the priest is sort of, standing uh, more to the, like, I think if I'm the, the priest facing outwards, the kneeler's a little bit to the right. Uh -huh. So that if the person comes and kneels with, you know, most priests are right-handed, there's not a big a big switch there. And if then for someone priest. coming forward, it doesn't feel awkward. Like, oh, you're doing see. something that is. Is that on both sides of the um, aisle? Let me see. To be honest with you, I don't know. Um, because okay. I'm, when we go there, we just happen to sit on the side that has the kneeler as an option. I suppose I do, people would do that. They would just gravitate towards that side if they're going to do it. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. Um, in fact, uh, another thing that has started to happen over here is, uh, there are an increasing, uh, an increased number of folks who choose to receive communion from the priest, uh, and and so they'll they'll like if they're in one part of the church, they'll like stand up, they'll exit their pew, they'll come all the way around to the other part of the the church to be able to get in line to receive communion from the priest. I think some of that's always happened. At least that's my experience um, as a priest who distributes communion. I know that there are there are always there's always been 
some people, and sometimes moving around, but oftentimes, sometimes priests move themselves toward the communion, but I've always been kind of a stationary priest. Um, and so, um, and in one of my new parishes, Sacred Heart, the priest is the one giving out the low gluten or the sick host or something. So we're, we're set in terms of where we are, and there are people who will, um, you know, that's their devotion. I know that that happens. But maybe oh. maybe there's an increase. But I, I it, I'll, it, it's been happening my whole priesthood. Oh, that's so interesting. Yep. And and here's the thing. I think that like the folks that I see doing that, and my family has started to do that. Um, it's not that you know, grumble, grumble, grumble. We're against lay people, right? I'm a lay person. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or uh, the history of how lay Eucharistic ministers or extraordinary ministers of the uh, of of uh, the Eucharist are somehow um, there's this tainted or or corrupt path that uh, it, no it, it's about fostering a sense of reverence it's wanting a sense of this is a holy thing that's happening here mm-hmm. that you're receiving Christ and so if we can help our kids elevate their consciousness and therefore shape their attitude towards receiving Holy Communion then it's going to manifest itself in their behavior regarding how they receive Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. So it's everything from how they dress to how they're, how we're encouraging them to pray and pray even certain prayers before they come forward for communion. And then it just elevates it to the next level if you can do things like receive on the tongue, receive from the priest, or even receive kneeling from the priest. Um, those are all elements to say this is not a casual act. Mm-hmm. This is not just some kind of, let's call it holy meal or sacred meal. No, this is this is an encounter with the glorified risen Lord who is God. And this is an incredible gift that is being given to you, the vessel of reception of Christ himself. And so be worthy act in a way that conforms to that spirit of uh, reverence, a holy fear of the Lord as you come forward to receive Holy Communion. Well, I, I do think it's true that we need to, you know, I don't know the right word, um, but per, I don't know if protect or to emphasize or the the reality of what's happening. I do think that as I see, as I experience um, both dis- both those receiving communion and, and, and me distributing communion, and I suppose other uh, people as well, the idea of know what you're doing and be aware of that. I, I do think that there's, we Catholics, I was just explaining the Mass to my RCIA class last week, and that was one of the things I was, I was talking about, just what happens at the Eucharist and, and this, the struggle to maintain the focus of what's really happening as opposed to a routine that I get into every Sunday or every day and in, in just oblivious of what's really happening there. So I do think you have to sort of hedge around that and protect that, um, the faith. Well, and I think about if, if I don't know how much credence we give to um, surveys, but when they do those, you know, Pew research or CARA research about the percentage of Catholics that are self-identifying and attending mass, how many of them, believe that Christ is truly present right? when they receive him in Holy Communion. You know, the number I heard was 30%. Right. Well, I, you can argue the percentage, but it's, it's scandalously low. Well, and, it, and then, again, it's, in the way I just said it, Father, it's not 30% of people who were born into a Catholic family and who are baptized Catholic. But, no, self-identifying, mass-attending Catholics, only 30% believe they're really receiving Jesus in Holy Communion, that that body and blood become transubstantiated into, I'm sorry, the, the bread and wine are transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ, true, real presence. That is scandalous. Mm-hmm. It is. And like I said, I, I've seen arguments about that number, but regard you could tweak it a little bit, and you know, not everybody who says they go to Mass does, but but that even so, it's 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 scandalous, whatever the number is. So it's like, okay, if that's true, then like, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. How do we, like, if we just keep doing what we're doing and we see the trend has been just a steady path down, 
what should we expect? Well, yeah. more of the same is what we should expect. So I think uh, a disruptive approach, an interruptive approach, uh, almost a shocking, like what, ice bucket challenge, get your attention approach uh, is, is something that can help like break open that consciousness, that awareness, that way of seeing. Uh, I, I think something like that, you know, maybe should, can really help. I, there, I think there's a need. Um, I think the problem's real in terms of Eucharistic devotion. And you can even say faith, uh, if that number is right. Um, but there might be those who say it, but still say, you know, I do, oh, I do believe that. But what if you look in what that belief really is, is it, is it real? Um, is it, is it, you know, deep? Is it something that's life changing? And so I do think, I think you make a good point in terms of, um, the, the downward, the trend is downward. Um, you can keep on doing the same thing you've always been doing, expecting different results. You know, you've heard of that. Um, that's insanity. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that is, you know, how do we, how do we stress the real presence? Um, and as, you know, you brought, you started with a communion role. I actually, I, I was thinking about this. I, I don't think I've ever been, I've never, I don't think I've ever been, I've never been assigned to a, no, I'll, I'll take that back. St. Charles Borromeo does have a communion rail left, um, and really not no use is made of it. But but I know other churches it's, um, that I know of I, that I've been part of has ever had one. So I, I don't have a lot of experience with that in terms of, and even the St. Charles Borromeo Tacoma uh, experiences, it was it's kind of a strange setup. So it, it, the, the communion rail is really not very prominent, and it doesn't it doesn't have an impact in terms of how people look at it and stuff. So I've really not had much experience with that. I don't yeah, think I've ever. I, I don't know if I, I'm thinking. Have I ever given an out communion at the communion rail? I I seem to think I have once or twice at some other church or something. I, I but I can't even swear that I've done it. I don't know. Yeah, I, I just find it so fascinating, and I, I want to go in two directions. The first is let's come back to the communion rail, and then I want to talk about adoration as a way of also helping foster a greater sense of reverence for the act of receiving Holy Communion. But I, I mentioned the altar rail because. It was connected initially to the idea of kneeling and receiving communion. But the part that I was catechized into, and, and this happens at the traditional Latin Mass, was that, no, on, on the other side of the altar rail is the, uh, is the, um, the what's it called? The uh, sanctuary, mm -hmm. right? The sanctuary. And then even within the sanctuary, there's the, the, the elevated space where um, the, the altar is. And the idea is that that's heaven. Mm -hmm. When you enter the sanctuary, it's like the high priest going into the uh, into the temple, and you go, you know, go to where the holy of holies is. You've entered heaven, and so the priest, through ordination, has been consecrated, set apart to be able to enter in where Christ the high priest is, and then the priest is going to come back towards earth, and. The only thing that's going to cross that threshold that separates the sanctuary from the body of the church is literally Holy Communion. Mm. And so the priest reaches across the threshold, reaches across the threshold at that point of contact, which is the altar rail, and Jesus now moves from heaven to earth at Mass and moves from the hands of the priest consecrated for this task to present the risen Lord into the body, uh, into the body of Christ, into the, the member of, of the church who's there to receive. And when you, like when I heard that, it was, it was really powerful. Mm -hmm. It was like, wow. It, it, again, it puts that, like a whole new way of seeing the act of receiving Holy Communion through the, the manner in which the liturgy unfolds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say, I, I had not heard that description before. I mean, I, I, I do get the sanctuary, and I've understood, and I've taught in RCA, the, the, the sanctuary is this, again, this understanding of heaven and this elevated place. You go up. Um, I've heard it, again, described it on myself in terms of the Hill of Calvary, but also Mount Sinai, but the idea of the Holy Holies, I think probably that I've experienced as well in terms of my own teaching and things. 
But that idea of Jesus crossing that 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 boundary, I, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. Yeah, so I, I found that to be really powerful. So when we come back, Father, um, we're up against our first break. I want to ask you about adoration. Because of the act of adoring the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, especially exposed in a monstrance, and how that can also be a contributor. It can augment or reawaken a sense of devotion to how it is we receive Holy Communion. So we'll talk about that in a minute on Sound Insight. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kernan with Father Kurt Nagel. And Father Nagel and I are starting in on this conversation. Because uh, Father Nagel brought up altar rails. <laughs> <laughs> that is not how it happened. Actually, I don't even know how I got to that. Oh, I know. It was Our Lady of Lords and receiving communion uh, with the kneeler next oh, yeah. to, to the priest. That's how we got there. Mm-hmm. And then that led to a, uh, a bit of an unfolding conversation around, um, are we the faithful receiving Christ with that sense of a vibrant, living, expectant faith that this is this is not just an ordinary action or a casual action, but one that ought to be approached with a sense of reverence and a sense of holy preparedness, uh, being in that state of grace, having that expectant faith, and coming with a sense of humble longing to receive the Lord. And how do we foster that and reawaken that? And just before the break, I mentioned to Father, hey, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the way in which having the faithful be invited to and come and attend Eucharistic adoration, especially exposition, where there's this thing called the monstrance. And I'm going to ask Father, what is the monstrance for those who might be listening but aren't aware of that term? And how how could that be connected to awakening and reviving a sense of Eucharistic reverence in the act of receiving Holy Communion? Well, monstr- that was a long wind-up, Father. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, I'll try to... I'll try to answer all those questions without asking what they were again. But um, <laughs> I, I do think the well, the monstrance is a is a liturgical vessel, I guess you'd say, from monstro monstrari, if you know the Latin, to, to show or to expose, um, and it's placed on the altar. Uh, it, it usually, oftentimes, looks like kind of a sunburst uh, motif. In the middle, is there? There's a, a space where you can put a large consecrated host into the luna it's called for the like a full moon in a glass container and you put that in the middle of this monstrance uh, usually gold or some precious metal it's made out of and then you put that on the altar candles around it and it's a, it's a point of focus for prayer and devotion for those um, again especially it, it, it makes no sense if you don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist but it, but this idea of there's, there's a physicality there that's visible of Jesus, and so again, to draw a prayer uh, to to the altar. I do think you know. Sometimes it's said, okay, exposition, adoration, and exposition is is a preparation for and a prolonging of the reception of your next Eucharist at, at Mass, which I think is is, is wonderful and true. I, I do think this is a a, a huge uh, a huge benefit for our church and. It's, I, I'm going to have it. I, I want you to keep on going where you want to go with this, Tom, but I have a, a, another question at the end that I want to poke your brain about as well. But go ahead. What's, what's next? I, I was just, uh, I know that in my life of faith, when I was 18, it was an encounter with Christ uh, in the tabernacle. Uh, and it was invited by the priest, the, uh, the priest I knew well. He said, Jesus is really there and he's waiting to show himself to you. And that's where I had this awakening of my own faith as a Catholic. Even though I grew up in a very devout Catholic home, it wasn't personalized and it wasn't profoundly rooted in an encounter with Christ that I was aware of mm-hmm. until I had that encounter with Christ in the Eucharist in adoration. Uh, in, 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 it was in the tabernacle. It wasn't in a time of exposition. It was in a time of private prayer in front of the tabernacle. And, um, and that changed everything for my whole life. And so I know as well that if, if you talk to my oldest daughter, Mary Grace, who just has a full of faith, um, it was at a Steubenville Northwest conference during the, I think it's Saturday night, they have their big Eucharistic procession and this massive event of adoration that was the breakthrough for her, that encounter with Christ that broke through. And so it's something that, Carrie and I have fostered through a practice in our own family, 
a time of adoration, a time of adoration, a time of adoration as so important to at least set the kids up for the encounter and then how that can change everything. I think, I do think that there's, there's so many examples that I have heard of and experienced, et cetera. So many witnesses uh, who have said that uh, adoration, Eucharistic adoration has been these meaningful points of conversion or deepening of faith. Um, it, there, and there's stories of the saints too, where you have, again, this encounter with the Christ on the altar and the monstrance and what this does. It, it, it's, I think it's, a, it's almost to the point of, you know, you could, you could use this as a uh, argument for the, uh, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist almost. How many lives have been changed simply by looking at this, this, is it an object or is it God? Uh, something happens. It, it, it's kind of like, um, again, it's maybe a bit, a bit of a stretch, but it, it, we were talking about apparition sites and things like this. The miracles of Lourdes point towards the reality of what's going on there. Um, well, it may, there may be physical miracles associated with exposition, et cetera, but more, more likely, just as with Lourdes, more likely it's these spiritual healings or uh, conversions that happen. And just to think of this practice as being an indicator of the real presence because people change so much, um, including people who are not very deep in faith or, um, again, miracles don't necessarily require that person to know exactly what's going on. And sometimes it happens to them anyway. So I do think that I've heard so much. There's, there's just so many stories out there among Catholics about exposition and adoration being powerfully uh healing and cha- life-changing. So again, I, I urge people just to try it. Just go, just to go do it. Um, it doesn't first, you don't have to first have this deep Eucharistic devotion and know everything about the Eucharist and, and Eucharistic theology to do it. It's, it's usually the other way around. Go and find the power of the, um, of the Eucharist there in adoration and you'll, you'll be drawn to learn more. Yeah, what my pastor said to me was so simple. He said, just say to Jesus... If you're really there, show yourself to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was that simple. If you're really there, show yourself to me. And it was that like light of faith. Faith is a light. It's not believing what you can't see from the standpoint of you're in the dark. No, the light of faith is what we learn about in, in the teaching of the church, that faith brings a whole new way of seeing because you have a supernatural light that has been turned on in your life. And that's the gift of faith that's already in us. So I, I love that simple way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Right? Jesus, if you're really there, show yourself to me and just ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock, and then watch what happens. Yeah, well, I agree. It's, it's, it's one of the kind of prescriptions for people I can give. Okay, just go and um, go into the Eucharistic Chapel, go in adoration, um, just spend time there and see what happens. All right, Father. So one of the things that Carrie and I um, are just constantly like wrestling with, okay, how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we do this with regards, with regards to our kids mm-hmm. is catechizing them. I know that might sound weird, but it's true. And so we're all, because they get tired of listening to dad, right? right? And so we look for good resources. And one of the things that Carrie likes to do is let's find good, like let's find a good movie. Let's find an inspiring documentary. And there was one Put out by the Knights of Columbus this mm. year, oh last year, 2022, on Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. Um, call I think it was called Mother Teresa, No Greater Love. Right. It's amazing. It's chilling from the standpoint of, like, wow. And uh, I, I recommend it. I know you're not a big movie guy, Father, or documentary guy, but this is this is one to bring to your people. Uh, and I bring it up for a reason, and the reason is that. She connected so profoundly the time her sisters spent in adoration mm-hmm. with the time her sisters spent serving the poorest of the poor. Mm-hmm. And essentially, and the sisters said it, they said it naturally, easily, quickly. It was just roll, like it just flowed out of them. It was, Mother always said that unless we are loving Jesus in the Eucharist and receiving from him his love, we won't be able to recognize or love him in the poorest of the poor. Mm-hmm. So there was this profound connection in her, her approach to living her call to adoration 
and going forth on mission. And that's a hard mission. Yeah. And I just think that if that's true in her case, in, in that kind of mission, then it's also going to be true if you're a husband, a father, a wife, a mother, a, you know, if you're a young person just trying to live your life of faith in the world, spend time in adoration. You're going to be loved by the Lord. You'll love the Lord. And then you'll be able to love and recognize the Lord better in the situations and relationships that are part of your life and your call. I have heard of that documentary, and I, I do intend to, to see it. In fact, I think we're trying to, my understanding, trying to get it to our uh, the St. Monica Parish, I think it's for Lent, the Knights of Columbus to show it, um, just to be, it is, as an offering to the parish. So I, awesome. I haven't seen it yet, but I again, I've heard from people who have, I've, I've heard good things, so. Well, for two dollars, you can watch it on Amazon Prime. Uh -oh. Not that I'm rec recommending Amazon, <laughs> but uh, for two bucks. Uh -oh. yeah. Anyway, well, Father, you said you had a question. Here's for my me. question. So, this is coming from pastoral experience, and I don't know if it's—I don't even know if it's valid or anything. But the, you know, there's—I—I th I see two experiences here, uh, and they're all this. And one, they're the same. It's, it's exposition of the Blessed Sacrament, um, exposed on the altar, or at least exposed in the. In the uh, uh, in a monstrance. And probably 30 years ago, or no, maybe 40, 40 years ago, we started seeing uh, adoration chapels spring up. And St. Monica's was one of the first in our archdiocese uh, to have. And it's, it's one of these small rooms where there is a monstrance that can be Originally, it was just you know you organize twenty four hour, uh, twenty four hour seven day a week signups to go into this little room and, and take your hour of adoration, and this is I mean, it's a powerful life changer for parishes. It, ha it has been, and so that's still happening at St. Monica's. It's it, it we have these this this now this tabernacle where you can close the doors yourself, you know, and it's in some ways it's the the power I think of the. The uh, the chapels actually diminished a little bit because it hasn't required us to be so intentional about twenty four seven and having people sign up. But my point is is that actually not that that I I think then I I brought back adoration exposition adoration on Friday evenings early uh, confessions and, and adoration and in a couple other ways I brought back adoration. And I wonder if my my wondering and it hasn't been that well received or attended. And so I wonder. You know, again, forty years ago, it would have been um, you, the parish. My parish, the parish, this would have been a, a big deal. In fact, it was in Port Angeles where I was before, uh, back in two thousand, two thousand five. That time, the day we we had one day, we didn't have a chapel. We had one day of adoration a week, and it was a it was a big deal. I wonder if have these little adoration chapels, which have their own own blessing and good, have they taken away from the power of sort of communal exposition and adoration? Where people say, I'm not going to go to that. I can just go to the chapel. Um, I can get my Jesus adoration fix there as opposed to being with other people. There's, there's a power, I think, even, you know, you had your, your experience just with yourself uh, in, the, in the tabernacle. But your daughter had an experience among thousands of people. And, and so I, I just put that out there wondering if, um, what's the relationship of these two experiences? Does one... Do they support each other? Does one take away from the other? Um, can it become less special? Kind of like, again, the danger of the Eucharist itself becoming less special for Catholics who just get so used to it. So I, I, it's just a pastoral question I'm thinking about. I love it. What a great question. Uh, I, and I don't think I have a um, yes, no kind of answer. What a surprise. Um, but I would make a distinction to see if this uh, casts a little light on it. There are parishes that we've been a part of that have had, let's call them reservation chapels. Mm -hmm. And it was more that oh, we're recovering a more ancient uh, custom of having architecturally distinct place where the tabernacle was. Mm -hmm. And so that was the idea of removing from the center of the church the tabernacle. So that's one thing. And I think that's a big failure. Yeah. I think... Yeah, I would but agree. that's not what you're saying. You're talking no. about 24-hour adoration chapels. Yes, for your exposition, so, you can you can go in there and have exposition anytime you want. Yes, I have found those very helpful for my family, mm -hmm. and um, I'll give you well for two reasons. The the first reason is I'm going to use the word intimacy. Mm -hmm. There's a, a nearness that is um, able to happen. That sense of you're drawing closer to the Lord, 
because these chapels are often very small. Right. And so you're just physically closer and you're not in such a big space where you're going to get lost. So I have found it very helpful for that, let's call it the personalization of the relationship with the Lord who comes close to us. Now, um, I the only, I think there are, there are only two parishes I know that have those types of adoration chapels that are essentially exposition occurs through the tabernacle right. itself yes. where you sort of open yes. the door. I think it's your parish, and I think Holy Cross in Tacoma uh-huh. has a, a tabernacle like that. I prefer the monstrance. Mm-hmm. So St. Philomena's has that. Um, St. Joan of Arc up here has that. Um, uh, Father Lewis's parish has kind of a combination, at least it did. Adoration Chapel was really just the backside of the tabernacle mm-hmm. um, in a smaller room. So it wasn't exposition. It was more you get to be in a smaller space where you can have access to the tabernacle day or night, but there wasn't exposition. So um, so I would say that was that would be the first reason. And then the second reason is that idea of 24-7 access. Uh, I, it's something that I've been able to benefit from personally where, you know, late at night, I'm like, Carrie, I'm just going to go pray. And I knew I could drive in the car. I had the code and I could access the, the Blessed Sacrament and just be in the presence of Jesus in a way that was, you know, really intimate and powerful at a time where I felt a desperate need to, to draw close to the Lord. Right, and I, 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 I hear all that, and I think those are all true, and, and uh, the intimacy, also the quiet, and especially the dead of night, um, the peace. I mean, I think that there's there can be for some people, I think including me to some level, a drawback of, okay, it is too small. I feel a little claustrophobic here with three other people right there. Um, and so for some, for, for me, again, that's probably just personal space issues, but um, not necessarily even you know official claustrophobia. But you know, sometimes in a big church, I just kind of like the, the, the space that, that I'm in there. So it's both and there, um, I, I would think. And I'm certainly not about ready to, to close our chapel because I do think that it's always a benefit. It's always a, a, a first thing. I, it, I would always bring a chapel into a parish I was pastor of. I, I think that that's an important thing. I think it's a priority. But I guess I was just thinking, okay, uh, does that access and that experience, does it lessen the, I'm going to say specialness, I don't know if that's the, the word, of uh, the, the larger church um, being a place of exposition and adoration on the times when it is? Um, do Does it lose its draw and, and so in some ways is communal adoration exposition l- less popular i that's i guess my question and i'm okay that's a great question okay so focusing in on that one um i have two experiences so the first one would be um saint joan of arc now this is a this is kind of a high bar but when um the pastor father gordon and I, I, this isn't these aren't quotes okay this is characterizing um, when he was like, okay, we're going to have an adoration chapel. He said, this is only going to happen if we get committed folks 24 mm-hmm. seven and the Lord is never to be left alone. Never. And so there's a big system in place to ensure that there's always going to be at least one, if not two people present adoring the Lord and that they're there on a mission. They're there to be vigilant in prayer for the entire parish before the Lord, before the Eucharistic Lord. And there's this uh, vision that said, if the Lord is ever left alone, then the priests will do penance for that failure of the parish to um, not uphold the call of being vigilant 24-7 before the Lord. So this is a call the parish has, and are we going to respond to this call? Mm. That's a really high bar. <laughs> yes, I agree. It's the pastor doing penance. I think it's a, a very interesting idea, though. Um, well, and, and here's the thing. During the COVID shutdown, mm-hmm. they did not stop. Mm-hmm. That, and so it was, how many hours, Father, are you going to be doing adoration in order to keep the vigil going Yeah. Um, until things open back up again? So it's... So that on the one hand, it raises 
the, again, the vision of the entire parish around, do you realize the gift that this is? Do you realize who is it is that is there? Do you realize that you're coming and joining? There is a call aspect. So I think from that standpoint, it does not take away from the wider sense of um, uh, like uh, more parish-wide acts of here's an hour when adoration will occur for everyone to attend mm -hmm. or anyone who wants to. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that there is a way in which it could be elevated. And, and then this would then lead to the second point, which is I think if it's done well, it, it's more of a leaven. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not held back from um, wider times, uh, like times of adoration for my whole family to go to um, just because I can access adoration on my own and, and even bring my kids. So we've made it now our custom to go to adoration on Sunday nights as part of Sung Vesters, Sung Vespers and Sung Compline at Bishop White Seminary, mm. which is, it's very powerful. And, and we have that wider community there in their chapel at the at that seminary. Folks, if you're in the Spokane area, you've got to come out 645 in the evening on Sundays. Just show up. The doors are open. You can come in. And even if you can't be there exactly at 645, come between 645 and 8 o'clock. 7 to 8, they have an hour of adoration. It is so inspiring to have these priests, uh, the rector of the seminary and the uh, vocation director of the diocese there praying an hour of adoration on their knees along with these 19 seminarians. It is so powerful. It is so powerful. It, it, you have that, like, uh, the, the all of the faith of everyone that's there. And I, I love bringing my family to that. Carrie is the one who's really said, we've just got to commit to be in there. Mm. So that's 645 until and it's done by 815 on Sunday night. And our kids just know this is just what we do on Sunday nights. Just don't even think about it. This is what we do. So anyway, so there's my there's my answer. I think that if it's done well, it's 11. It doesn't hurt, but actually will help foster um, greater attendance at um, uh, at times of adoration. You know, it's, I hadn't actually known about the uh, Bishop White uh, adoration and Holy Hour. I, so that's interesting to, to find out. And I think that would be beautiful. Uh, so I would echo that. You know, I... I, I, I'm trying to push both. In the, for instance, St. Monica's, we, we do ad, uh, exposition, um, adoration, benediction for the school kids once a month. Um, besides the school masses, we do we do a um, exposition, benediction. And it, again, their whole school's there. So, you know, there's a little bit of uh, shuffling and, you know, but they're really pretty good um, in terms of that. Again, trying to instill this idea of, you know, just what is benediction what is the eucharist why are we doing this and trying to um, give them experience of sort of a communal it's not sung you know morning prayer or anything but but it's still something that's important i think to pass on to people in terms of um but i i we haven't and it's understandable because we, these kids can't just go anywhere they want into the into the we don't give them access to the little chapel because again it wouldn't be appropriate for school days because we, they'd be unsupervised, but but I do think that idea of training them or exposing them to benediction early, so that they 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 have some comfort and knowledge of it, and maybe an experience of of the the presence of Christ and the movement of Christ in their lives. Uh, so not just to to expose people people to the the Eucharist at Catholic schools, but also the benediction and exposition experience. That's powerful. I love it. Yeah, I, um, a great conversation, Father. We're up against a break. When we come back, we're going to shift from the. The Blessed Sacrament to that which appeared on the other pillar in the dream of St. John Bosco uh, to help the, 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 the church as the, the boat on the stormy seas. There were two pillars. One was the, the Eucharist, and there was another one on the pillar. And Father, uh, Father Nagel is going to tell us what that was in just a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. Father Nagel, are you ready to answer? You well, know what I, was on that other I, pillar I have, in that dream? I have read the dream. I know it's Mary. I don't know if there's yes. some special, <laughs> like particular, you know, devotion of Mary, it's like Mary of Our Lady of Lourdes or something. But I know it was Mary. I just don't know the details about it. I, I, yeah, I I can make something up, but I don't <laughs> remember many of the details itself, other than just seeing the paintings and just yeah. seeing these two big like. Uh, Greek pillars, right, and, and the Blessed Mother's on one, and and the Blessed Sacrament in a monstrance yeah, is yeah. on the other. 
And then here's the boat in the midst of a storm. The bark of Peter. Yes, there it is. So, uh, so there we are. At uh, today on the program, uh, we are we're, we're sort of what, straddling the reality of uh, Our Lady of Lords, the feast day on Saturday. We, we're having this program on Monday, and Father, we're um, we were talking. We've been talking about the Eucharist, the, the Blessed Sacrament, the gift of receiving Holy Communion in a in a manner that will ele- be elevated to help enrich our faith. Um, I mean, because there's a lot at stake in receiving Holy Communion, right? So St. Paul in what, is it 1 Corinthians, First Corinthians. chapter 11 talks yeah. about people receiving unworthily and getting sick and dying? I mean, that's a <laughs> that's a pretty big deal. I do. I, I agree. The idea of people who want to receive it, you know, they're not eligible for whatever reason. There's multiple reasons why. But not to want that if you know, it's not like it's it's no big deal. It's there's actually a there's a boomerang effect. Um, so you know, again, make sure you're aware of and able and uh, in a state to do that. Or else, again, it's it's not like it's a nothing. It's a negative. Well, and you know the um, one of the very early prayers connected to the revelation of the Sacred Heart of Jesus to Saint Margaret Mary Alacoque is a prayer of rep- consecration and reparation. And the point of focus is receiving Holy Communion in a way that was ungrateful, negligent, blasphemous, or sacrilegious. Right. Those are some big words. <laughs> You're right. You're right. And how many of us are, maybe not blasphemous, but how many, you know, maybe, but but maybe not. Or maybe not even sacrilegious, maybe, maybe not. But but not worthily in the sense of um, ungrateful and un- ungrateful. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that that's uncomfortable. <laughs> so let's let's move from one level of comfort to another. So, Father, uh, we we were. Oh, I got to say one other thing about Reverend Mass since we're on this theme. It was again something that Carrie heard at the women's retreat. A priest was giving a homily, and it's another one of these things that. When I first encountered it, maybe ten years ago, I looked at it and thought, "All right, this is this is just quaint, or it's old-fashioned, or it is out of touch. It's women wearing veils." And now that's also something that is showing up more and more at uh, Novus Ordo masses, mm-hmm. uh, women wearing veils. And I think some of the older folks, especially you know women, they'll wear some kind of scarf just because that's how they were brought up. Um, or a hat, a nice like a a, a, um, a a chapeau or some kind of hat that is um, that that is maybe more decorative in meaning, but is still the idea of wearing a a, a worthy head covering. Um, and again, it was one of those things where oh, I'd never really heard this before, and that is the idea that a veil in the uh, in the consecrated place of a church is a sign of an indication of holiness, that which is holy is veiled. And so you veil the altar with the altar cloth. You veil the tabernacle with a cloth. And and then who is it that is the most fully veiled at Mass? It's the priest. Mm. And the priest is veiled, and anyone who enters the sanctuary is veiled as well. And so the idea that there would be a corresponding sense of, oh, there are members of our community who also are veiled to uh, indicate the particular genius of the holiness associated with them just being them. Mm-hmm. That, um, that, that is so much more meaningful and powerful to me than, uh, again, than I'd ever even heard before. H- have you ever heard that before? Um not no not not certainly in that detail or um the idea of the veil you know veiling yourself because of the holiness i i think i probably yes have heard of that but not the full explanation that you just gave but i would say this you know it's interesting you make this observation that more people more women are are put on some sort of head covering in the nova so i'm talking about novus ordo um i think that's true um it's not overwhelming or anything, but it's it's noticeable. There there are some, and and it's interesting. I think there's those who take comfort from that, and there's those who take alarm at that. Um, and I I guess I would I, I'm kind of a more uh, G- Gamaliel sort of person here in saying um, 
let's see what the Holy Spirit's doing here. Um, it's Nobody's forcing this. Um, there's nobody who's, you don't get a big benefit from it in terms of, I don't know, uh, outside world. And so, and it's not, you mentioned el- older women, but it's oftentimes younger women um, who are actually doing it. And so, is this the spirit's movement? Um, I, I, so again, I, I won't get upset. I won't. I won't tell my people you, sh- you need to do this. I won't say try to make them feel uncomfortable if they do. I'm just saying again. I'm kind of just letting the spirit take its course there. Um, but I do see that. I see that happening. Yeah, it, it, it is fascinating, and, and you're right. I would say that if you go to St. Mary's, Father Lewis's parish, you'll see a lot of women veiling, and it's. Um, I think if you said, what is the common indicator among them? It's not age. It's a sense of, I've experienced a revival of faith, and I am attempting to express a greater sense of reverence for the event at which I've been privileged to participate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not, you know, if you interviewed them, they're not going to say that those words specifically, but it, it's that kind of sentiment. I think that has um, been behind a lot of it for the for the women that I know that that do it. So, I don't know, interesting uh, interesting point. Oh, and, and the Blessed Mother's veiled. There you go. Right. Yes. So uh, there's my transition point. Did you like that? <laughs> yeah, very smooth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Father, Feast of Our Lady of Lords on Saturday. Um, have you ever been to a an apparition site? Was first question. Yeah. And number two. When people make pilgrimages, they'll often go to a, a, a site of a Marian apparition, right? Obviously, Fatima, Lourdes, or Guadalupe right. are probably the top three. Um, and then there are other spots as well that sort of lower on the bar, uh, lower down the list. Um, and what are your thoughts around that? Uh, you know, I was trying to think. I, I don't think, I haven't been to any of the biggies. I, I was wondering, I think that... No, I haven't been to any of the big apparition sites myself. Although my parishioners, I've had parishioners go to Lourdes as official um, uh, malad, malads. I forget the name of the words. Um, oh, the malad. Malad. Uh, the mal- yeah, the malads, the people with sick. cancer yeah. um, or some other serious illness who who are taken from our country at least, usually by the uh, the Knights of Malta. I think that's that's yes. one of their big uh, ministries. I think. And it's been a powerful experience. I haven't had a physical healing from my parish, but I have had spiritual growth, strengthening, and peace that comes from that. Um, so, but I've not myself personally experienced that. I think it's great. I, th- you know, what do I think of it? I think I encourage everybody to go. I've never, you know, I've I've missed out on the whole Iberian Peninsula in France. I've never really gone to that part of Europe at all. Um, and so I, I probably would if I if I was in doing France, I probably would do Lourdes, and I'd probably stop by Portugal if I was doing Spain, maybe. But I've never had that personal experience. Yeah, Father Lewis, he recently went to Fatima and Lourdes, and I have to I have to admit I was disappointed that he was disappointed in Fatima. Uh-huh. So, I, but anyways, that's a that's a separate I, conversation. Since he's not here, we can talk about him. Well, yes, we could, <laughs> but um, I do think I had a. Wait, pers- before you do that, Father, okay. we got to take one more oh, break, okay. and then I want to hear your thoughts. Back in a minute with more sound insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel. Today we're talking about, well, we're now in the section of the program, which we have another Last five four, minutes. <laughs> four minutes, Father. Um, so I want to hear your thoughts. You were going to say something very profound, everybody. Please listen. Very, very <laughs> profound about the Blessed Mother and apparition sites. No, it wasn't very profound. But, but it was something I did not expect, that I just spoke with a couple who had come back from, from uh, Lourdes. And I think a lot of people th- think, oh, it's so commercialized. They hear that all the time. People are selling rosaries left and right. It's lots of little booze, and it's, it's just all—it's all about money, etc. That was not there. Was, theirs was the opposite idea. And these are not; these are people who would be able to perfectly willingly say this if this was something that was just a, a bad atmosphere. They would have said that. But they said no. You know, they were struck by how reverent and how holy the place was. And they're talking about lords. He said, sure, outside there, you know, there's there are people who are selling things. But they were surprised by their they, – they weren't going there as, as seriously ill. They were just going there on pilgrimage. But they did take the waters and, and things. And they, their whole idea was there's still a holiness here that, that any of that other activity cannot destroy. Um, there's, there's something there, someone there 
um, that again pressed them, even though they were they were kind of dragged along in some ways, but it still worked for them. And so I, I think I, I I heard so oftentimes that it's you know these places get all commercialized, but that's human the human being at work. But Mary's still working there. And so to go there and not be put off by any sort of superficial thing, but just recognize that something incredible has happened and can happen there. You know, Father, we, this is going to open up a bigger conversation. We'll have to do it on another occasion. And that has to do with folks who have made pilgrimages to uh, Marian appar- a supposed Marian apparition sites where it is either questionable, doubtful, or spurious, where mm-hmm. there is, um, the church has made an official pronouncement that uh-huh. the Blessed Mother has is not there. I think, uh, or there's no signs of supernatural activity, right? So the, I think the one that's the most controversial would be uh, Medjugorje. Right. Um, but then I think shortly after that would be Garabandal in Spain, mm-hmm. is another one. Mm-hmm. And then um, one that drew a lot of attention in the late 80s was. Uh, Bayside, New York. You mm. may not even remember that. Um, there was a, a woman there who supposedly was having these visions, and uh, and it just it ended up being identified that the woman is, you know, this is just there's no sign of Makeup. of of God in right. supernatural work. But but there, here's my point. This is the conversation. There are great crowds that go there and they come back and they experience an awakening of faith and a conversion and they associate it with these sites that end up being identified as not from God. Mm-hmm. You have one minute, Father, to, to give us your thoughts about that. I would just say, first off, God can work in, God works in the midst of everything. Uh, he's present everywhere. And if we had come and open this to him, he can work in us, even in a place that, again, objectively speaking, may not be what he desires. But he does that all the time in our lives. We do things he doesn't want us to do all the time, and yet he makes makes good come out of it. So that's the only thing I would say in the terms of that whole idea, which is, it's real. I've, had, I've, I've known people like that. A, a great point, Father, and I, a great point to end on. Um, uh, the, and the other thing that if we could talk about it longer, it would be this idea that when you're with people of authentic faith in big crowds, God uh-huh. is there yeah. and God's going to work and even work to break you open and, and to bring about an awakening of your life. Um, even if the context is, is ultimately identified as, as false. So, well, father, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it. We are at the end of our program. God bless you all. Join me tomorrow for more sound insight.